Live. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to Practica's latest friends. Um, the friends on this occasion are, as usual, um, Andy Ellis, the managing director of Practico, myself, Jeremy Morgan, uh, consultant to Practico and retired cost counsel. And our guest today is Jamie Carpenter QC of Helsham Chambers, who we're very pleased to welcome. Um, we should add as a note of information that uh, Jamie has recently been promoted to head of costs at Hailstrom Chambers. So uh, congratulations on that, Jamie. Um, in terms of format, those of you who followed uh, these chats in the past will know roughly how it goes. The one thing I did want to say at the outset was don't bother to take a note of cases in detail because there will be case references and similar um, details available by email to those who are on the email list already. Um, if you're not on the email list and you'd like an email containing this information, then write to costs at practico.co.uk. Um, but there will also be notes available on YouTube and uh, a audio version will be available on usual podcast channels. So that's my um, substitute for the fire drill that I used to have to do when these uh, talks were given in presence before the pandemic. Um, we're going to look at a variety of uh, topics today. Um, just to give you a heads up, non-party costs orders, security for costs, um, dreadful subject, the abatement of a brief fee when a case settles before trial, um, some pitfalls of regulated retainers, and the latest developments in the Rosenblatt CFA litigation, which some of you may have followed with some trepidation. Um, I just wanted to steal Jamie's thunder for a moment by taking a quote from the first case, which um, uh, struck me as very strongly. Um, Lord Justice Coulson, in, in the first case, which is Gopner and Aitachli, um, started off by saying this. For those who believe that most civil litigation does not end up being about the costs that were incurred in pursuing the same litigation in the first place, look away now. Um, that particularly got me because I suppose my career and indeed the cost bar is um, based on those people who didn't look away and realised, as all solicitors realise, and fortunately now some barristers are beginning to understand, um, that costs are incredibly important in litigation and there's no point in winning the case if you lose the costs or vice versa. With that um, welcome reminder from Lord Justice Coulson, I pass you over to Jamie. Thanks very much, Jeremy, for that introduction. Um, thank you, Andy, for uh, inviting me on to speak to you this morning. Um, I, I think that that introductory remark from Lord Justice Coulson is interesting, actually, because although it betrays a sort of judicial horror at the idea that people might care more about the costs than the substance of the litigation itself, the fact that we are here talking today and have all made successful careers out of this area of the law shows that actually we have to be realistic and understand that from our client's point of view, it's no good winning the litigation and losing the costs. I'm, I'm sure we all remember from our early days in practice as, as a second six pupil coming back from the county court and proclaiming to your solicitors proudly, we, we won the case, the client got damages, but we didn't get any costs. Uh, and being terribly surprised that uh, your professional client doesn't regard that as a uh, particularly wonderful outcome. 
Um, what, what the Gochner case certainly is, is a lesson in the perils of litigation and of how you can win the case, but end up worse off than you started. Uh, but it is, I think, a very significant and welcome, I would say, decision on the jurisdiction to make a non-party costs order um, against a director or shareholder of a small company. Um, I'll, I'll whiz through the facts as, as quickly as I can. Um, Mr. I. Tatchley was the director and shareholder of a company called Organic Village, which was in the business of importing orange juice. And it got into a dispute with Gochner, which was uh, one of its suppliers, over the, the quality of the orange juice, a dispute which actually Organic Village was on the right side of. They refused to pay for a shipment and ended up being sued by Gochner and Organic Village counterclaimed. Uh, and Gochner's claim was struck out for non-satisfaction of a previous adverse costs order. So Organic Village got its costs and, and got a, a substantial order for a payment on account, which Gochner satisfied. But Organic Village's solicitors were acting on the CFA, so they took the whole of that money. Organic Village didn't benefit from it, and Mr. Itachley didn't benefit from it. Organic Village then won its counterclaim, but only got nominal damages of £2 which was disastrous for the company in a number of respects. Firstly, it was ordered to pay 25% of Gochner's costs of the counterclaim, but also it enabled its solicitors to say, well, there you go, you've won your claim and you now have to pay us all of our fees under the CFA and a success fee. And actually there's an interesting aside, it appears in a footnote to Lord Justice Coulson's judgment that, that it was highly questionable actually whether it was appropriate of the solicitors to do that. And um, he notes the conflict of interest which they would have found themselves in when it would have been open to Organic Village to say, actually, I'd rather have no damages at all if it means I don't have to pay my lawyers than two pounds that means I have to pay them everything. But that, that's rather by the by. So the outcome of all of this was there was actually a net costs liability firmly in favour of Organic Village. Even the 25% that they had to pay Gochner was, was only going to make a small dent in what Gochner had to pay them. The problem was that they had no money to pursue their own detailed assessment. Gochner got a default cost certificate uh, and then they got an unless order requiring uh, Organic Village to commence detailed assessment. They didn't. The bill was assessed at nil. Uh, and Organic Village then had to repay the payment on account which Gochner had previously made. So they've, they've won the case at every stage except only getting nominal damages uh, and yet find themselves having to pay a six-figure sum to Gochner. Couldn't do so and so Gochner came after Mr. Itachley. Uh, and I think anyone who hears those facts would, would be pleased to hear that the judge at first instance didn't order Mr. Itachley to pay the costs of the proceedings. Uh, and that was upheld on the appeal. Um, I, I think what, what I find very welcome about this decision is that it brings, I think, some much needed order to what can be a very unruly jurisdiction. And there's been a bit of an arc in the approach of the courts to these sorts of cases. When, when this jurisdiction was first identified and, and developed in, in the 80s. I, initially, there was real hesitation on the part of judges about to what extent these sorts of orders were appropriate, particularly against directors and shareholders of small companies. You know, are you, are you undermining the principle of limited liability? And you had cases like Metalloy Supplies, Symphony Group and Hodgson and, and Taylor and Pace Developments 
really stressing the exceptional nature of this jurisdiction, necessary safeguards and, and a number of criteria which judges then thought should be satisfied before you make an order like this. And then we really saw those sort of strict guidelines watered down in a succession of subsequent cases which really reduced the jurisdiction to something of a free-for-all. Uh, and uh, we were often told, you know, we don't want to see you citing earlier cases. The only question is, is it just to make an order? Now, in lots of those cases, it was very obviously just to make an order. And you could sense the judicial impatience with counsel before them, taking them through lots and lots of previous cases to try and find something to stick in the spokes of the wheel to try and enable the judge not to make force the judge not to make the order which it was clearly right to make. And the problem is, though, in turning this into something of a free-for-all, that's all very well in the clear case. The difficulty came in the borderline cases, which effectively came down to sort of judicial whim. You know, if, if you lost but you charmed the judge from the witness box, then you might get away with not paying the cost. But if you lost badly or, or the judge just didn't like the cut of your jib, then you might have to pay them. And what I always felt looking at these cases was that if, if this jurisdiction is fundamentally about doing justice, I think an important aspect of justice is predictability of outcome. And if you can't say to your director, your shareholder in advance, whether you think they are likely to be personally exposed to costs or not, then I think there is a problem with the jurisdiction. So this case, I, I think, rehabilitates some of those older cases. And I think, it's, I think it's a good thing that it's done so. It stresses that what you have to focus on is the interest of the company. Was the director, was the shareholder acting in the interest of the company? And if they were, then it's irrelevant. Success might also have been in their own interest. So if winning meant that the company could repay a loan to the director, or that it meant that personal guarantees the director had made wouldn't be called on, then, then that's nothing to the point. Um, the question is whether the, the director, the shareholder, is the real party and not a real party. And again, that, that was, I think, a slightly unsatisfactory tendency that arose in some of the, the previous cases that, well, it, it doesn't matter if the company is still a relevant party, if the director also is. And, and that really, I think, shuts down that line of argument. And if the company is the real party, then you're only going to get a cost order against the director uh, if there has been some serious impropriety or, or, or bad faith. And uh, what this, I think, case, as, as you know, demonstrates as much as anything is that if, if the facts are on your side, then you're going to establish some, some good legal principles. But I think they are important legal principles, and I, and, and I think it's a very important decision. Mm. I, I, I... I, I agree. I think it's a. I think it is an interesting decision, and I think it, it, it's um, it, it's great that you showcased it because um, in our part of the job, we normally, well, almost always, come in after the cost order has been made. So I mean, it, we would we, just be picking up whatever whatever order has been made, be it against the director personally or or, or otherwise. But I think it will be particular of interest to um our uh, commercial lawyer clients um because this uh, as you say the predictability point um and a, a better predictability about how much their client might personally be on the hook uh, has got to be a good thing i would have thought um, uh, and it cuts both ways i mean 
you know, looking at a case like this focuses on the position of, of the director, but you also want to consider it from the point of view of the litigant against an insolvent corporate entity that, that will want to be thinking about what are the chances of getting somebody else to pay. Uh, and it also focuses attention on, and this didn't actually come up in the, in the Gottman judgment, um, and we'll be talking about this a bit more later, is security for costs. And one of the important points that was made in Metalloy is that if you are sued by a, an impecunious corporate entity, your primary remedy is security for costs. You know, it, it's not really the done thing not to apply for security and then pop up at the end of the case and say, well, yes, we didn't apply for security and we didn't give the director the chance to decide, does he want to put his hands in his pocket to fund this litigation or not? We're going to let it run its course and then say, actually, Mr. Director, you should pay. Mm. Um, and, and that was something that concerned, I think, it was Lord Justice Millet in, in Metalloy. Not an issue in Gochner, but insofar as Organic Village was counterclaiming, then Gochner could have applied for security for the costs of the counterclaim. And we're not told whether they considered it, uh, and we assume that they didn't. But, but I think um, you know, the lesson is whenever you've got an impecunious entity involved on either side, everyone needs to be thinking from the start, where is this going to end up in terms of costs? Who's going to pay? Who can we look to? Uh, are the people behind my client at risk of having to pay personally? Yeah, yeah. I think that's very practical advice. The, the thing that interested me in the judgment was the rejection of the argument that the company and the funder or the, the, the third party can both be the real party. Um, you have to choose. And, and that I think is quite an important step forward because I always used to wonder, well, maybe, yeah, I can see he's got an interest, but is there just one real party or can there be two? And I, that, that was firmly rejected in this case. Yeah, and I, and I think that's very welcome. And, and particularly for the position of the one man band company or the husband. We have some problems of uh, internet connection I'm going to carry on and hope that this is getting through. Well, we have had some problems with internet. Yeah, if ever there was a sentence to tempt fate, that, and this that is on one. that. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, I'm sure our audience will forgive us because of the uh, uh, the, the the problems that face them daily on these sorts of events. Um, and uh, I think Jeremy's camera has just gone, but Jeremy's still here. Um, so that might be a good time to um, move on to the, uh, uh, the other cases that you're going to be mentioning in the next topics. Um, well, the next, the next topic is security for costs. And I'm, I'm not going to do this, I think, um, in the same sort of way as just a sort of reference to a succession of cases, because I think there is a, there's a thematic element to introduce to this first of all, and then I'll, I'll say something briefly about what is a trio of cases, which, which I think, again, it, it's interesting to see um, a, a, a sort of trend, again, in another area of costs law, which is backtracking from some of the recent developments to what might be thought of as a more old-fashioned position. And in relation to security for cost, that, that old-fashioned position is that security means hard cash. Yeah. And um, we've seen in recent years a trend with uh, increasing use of after the event insurance, 
to regarding having an ATE policy as meaning that security doesn't need to be provided or that the ATE policy can stand as security. And we saw the beginning of a, a turn in that trend with the Court of Appeals decision in Premier Motor Options um, a few years ago now, but, but starting this by toughening the approach to accepting ATE as meaning that security doesn't have to be provided. Um, and not quite saying it has to be as good as cash, but not very much further than that. And, and focusing much more, I think, than the sort of the AT liberalizing trend had done on the interests of the defendant, because this is a jurisdiction which exists to protect the defendant from the risk that they win the case and don't get their costs. Uh, and three cases in the, in the last six or eight months or so, I think can be seen as, as part of that sort of retrenching trend. Um, the first of them is a case called Rowan Ingenious Media. Uh, actually on itself a very limited issue, but um, some interesting wider observations were made. This is a case in the Court of Appeal where actually the very narrow point before the court was whether the commercial funder of the claimant, which had been ordered to put up security under CPR 25.14, should have a cross undertaking as to damages. And at first instance, the judge had ruled out the idea that it being more expensive to the claimants if the funder uh, had to put up security being relevant, that was um, what he called a sort of internal cost. That was just a question of distributing damages as between the, the, the claimants and the funder. And he wasn't interested in that. But when the funder came back and said, well, actually, there may be some external costs, the first instance judge was prepared to contemplate the possibility that if there were external costs, um, they could be compensated under a cross undertaking. So he made the cross undertaking and left any inquiry until the end of the case. And the Court of Appeal were having none of that. And Lord Justice Popplewell gave a very trenchant judgment in which he said, no, this is simply not appropriate. Um, the general point that comes out of it is that defendants should not have to meet the costs to claimants of providing security. Um, the giver of a security is not entitled to a cross undertaking as to damages. And al although the Lord Justice left open the possibility that in what he called a rare uh, and exceptional case, a cross undertaking might be ordered, there's absolutely no indication in the judgment of what a rare and exceptional case might be. And it's certainly rather hard to think of one. But um, he was particularly troubled by the idea of a commercial funder getting a cross undertaking in damages. Because, as he said, commercial funding is a commercial operation. This is part of the cost of doing business. But also, and this is where I think there are some interesting wider observations on the position of commercial funders, that they ought to be properly capitalised. Um, and Lord Justice Popplewell um, took a pop, if I can put it that way, at, at funders operating through opaque offshore structures. Uh, and the funder in this case um, was operating through, through a Jersey corporate structure uh, about whose financial position, of course, nothing was known. Uh, and he said, well, if you're going to operate your business like that, then you can't complain if you're required to put up security and it costs you something to do so. 
Um, and interestingly, also, he rejected an argument that membership of the Association of, of Litigation Funders per se demonstrated an ability to pay. Of course, ALF is a, is a voluntary membership organization. They, they have a code of conduct that members have to sign up to. And that code of conduct includes obligations as to capital adequ adequacy, in theory, you know, or obligations to submit financial reports to ALF so that can be checked up on. But as, as Lord Justice Popperwell noted, it not only is membership voluntary, the, the obligations are only owed to ALF. They're not owed to clients. They're not owed to opponents in the litigation. And he wasn't impressed, it's clear, by the submission that that meant that you could take these things on trust. Uh, and he said, really, funders... It's interesting, uh, Jamie, that... So it was interesting that um, some, some of the other claimants had been funded by uh, Harbour, uh, who had done a deal with the other side. And um, he was clearly, impliedly drawing a contrast between uh, those who had um, been able to satisfy the other side as to their, uh, their financial standing. Um, and Harbour is an old friend of Practico. Susan Dunn has been uh, on one of our talks um, when we were still doing it in, in presence. Um, and uh, Ethereum, which was the funder in that particular case. Yes, that is quite a striking distinction. And Harbour had actually demonstrated, you know, that the funds were there and, and, and the defendant was satisfied. Um, it, interestingly, I've also been involved, I'm involved in, in, in quite a few um, uh, collective proceedings applications in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. And I was involved in one in particular for, for the potential defendants where Ethereum was funding one of the, um, the potential class representatives. Um, again, through Jersey opaque structures. And we very much took the point that, that these were opaque structures and demonstrate, didn't demonstrate an ability to provide the necessary funding. In that case, Mr. Justice Roth was very happy to take on trust that, that ALF membership meant you know, nothing to see here. Um, so it, 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 does this represent a, a general sort of turning of the judicial tide? Is there perhaps um, a greater willingness um, actually to require funders to, you know, to show where the money is? Um, I, I think it's certainly going to be welcome to defendants if that is the case. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, or, well, likewise, I mean, do you think that that point will end up in the Court of Appeal? Um, it, 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 in the competition, a tribunal, uh, yeah, competition yeah. appeal tribunal. Well, I mean, the particular case I was involved in won't, but these points are, are going to come up again and again because that's a, a fascinating jurisdiction where the court is obliged to scrutinise the the, the the potential class representatives' fundings, funding arrangements, um, and and so um, these points are certainly ripe to be taken. Yes, yeah, it's a whole new world, isn't it? At some point, yeah. Um, uh, so that yeah that that that's the first of the three cases, and then following hot on the heels of Roe was a case called Infinity Distribution and the Khan Partnership. Um, also an ATE angle to this, um, slightly different issue though, that the that the claimant had been ordered to put up security, but wanted to do so by extending its ATE insurance and getting a deed of indemnity. To, to back it up and wanted to provide that as the security. 
but being being a legacy case where the proceedings have been started while where you have an insolvent uh, litigant, the cost of ATE was still recoverable and, and therefore top up costs remain recoverable. Certainly the cost of the additional ATE insurance would have been recoverable into partes and arguably at least the cost of the deed of indemnity as well, though, though the, the court acknowledged there was something to argue about there. That the way the claimant was proposing to, to give the security would have ended up being much more expensive for the defendant if the, if the claimant ended up winning the case. And the master and the, 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 the high court judge had allowed the claimant to give the security in that way, effectively giving effect to a principle that, that all other things being equal, the, the method of providing security should be that which is most convenient to the claimant. But uh, of course, the key point made in the Court of Appeal and accepted was, well, all other things aren't equal here because if security is given this way, it could end up being much more expensive for the defendant. Uh, but if the claimant has to put up cash, that might be inconvenient for the claimant, um, but much more convenient for the defendant. And actually, what the claimant was proposing to do was effectively to give itself the benefit of a, a, a form of cross undertaking and damages. I mean, that, that's, that's effectively what it would have been um, achieving. Um, it leaves a couple of interesting points open, though, because um, firstly, the, the court didn't rule out uh, the provision of security by way of a deed of indemnity in another case where the cost wouldn't be recoverable. So, I mean, if, if that is a cost the claimant is prepared to swallow, then if it makes no odds to the defendant, you know, no reason why security shouldn't be given in that way. It doesn't rule out a, a deed of indemnity um, full stop. But it also occurs to me that there may be a bit of a lacuna in the reasoning, because um, this decision was made because the claimant decided to fight the point, or rather because the claimant went to the defendant and said, we are proposing to do it like this. But mm -hmm. what if, in response to the defendant's letter saying we would like security, the claimant has simply gone out and unilaterally got this deed of indemnity and top up to its ATE? I mean, that, that's a fact on the ground, which it would have created, that I'm not sure the court would have had any power to undo. Mm. Because once you've got your deed of indemnity, um, the, the gateway to ordering security is no longer satisfied. It's very difficult to see what power the court would have had to say, well, actually, we're going to disregard this and order you to put up cash. Because the claimant can say, well, actually, look, we are now good for the money. The defendants then left relying on an argument at the end of the case, well, there just wasn't a reasonable thing to do and we shouldn't have to pay the additional premium, but that's a that's a tricky argument if you're going to apply, you know, the, the the usual approach to reasonableness. You know, imagine imagine the solicitor sitting in his chair at his desk, thinking, doing the right thing for my client. Well, what is there to complain about here? So um, that that isn't touched on in the reasoning of the court. It would be interesting to, to, to wonder what they would have done in those circumstances. Be, be a more difficult argument to run now, wouldn't it? In the light of that, the, the argument on reasonableness would be very strong. For, for the defendant? It, 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 possibly so, but it's certainly it's a, it's a much more difficult and uncertain argument if you have to wait until detailed assessment than, than to be able to ventilate it before the court when yeah. the decision is being made. But I mean, given, given that, that you know, this is a case which it's remarkable that it's still going, a point which the court made, there aren't going to be too many of these sorts of cases left in, in, in the pipeline. Yeah. 
That's true. The hangovers from the good old days, eh? <laughs> well, we still we we still got a few few publication and privacy cases out there. Mesothelioma cases, oddly, don't seem to be troubling us as far as I can see. But um, maybe they're storing something up for us in the future. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'll just quickly mention, there's not much to say about this, but I said there was a trio of cases and the last one is quite entertaining in its subject matter. Um, Tulip Trading Limited and, and Bitcoin Association for BSV, a case about Bitcoin uh, in which the claimant um, was not allowed to provide security in Bitcoin, <laughs> um, essentially because the master thought that it, it was just too volatile. They were proposing, I think, to pay 10% over the current equivalent value of the security order to allow for volatility um, and and um, the master said no that won't do um, you've got to put up uh, regular regular currency but what was the, the the irony there was that the defendant bitcoin was saying no 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 which i wanted in bitcoin <laughs> i thought that was lovely <laughs> it was cash <laughs> some folding please yeah. well, I, was just, I was just hearing on the news this morning I think Bitcoin had sort of halved in value one week and then doubled in value the next week yeah, I was going to say 10% a bit yeah. optimistic isn't it in terms of a, a volatility corridor quite I think yeah. it's going to be a while before we see non-fungible tokens being, um, being, being paid into court um, good Oh, I know what's coming up next. I don't think you're, I don't think uh, uh, James is going to want to spend too much time on that, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to sinking my teeth into this, Andy. If 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 you're inviting me to move on to Hankin and Barrington, yeah. Obviously, I'm 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 going to put my Barristers Union badge on and say this is an absolutely terrible decision. But but actually. Um, I, I think in all seriousness that there, there are some grounds for concern um, and of course the concern is, is not so much for the barrister involved, I mean he may have had a slightly awkward conversation with his clients afterwards, but actually it is the client, it's the client's claim for costs and it is the client that has been denied recovery of, of most of the brief fee which agreed to pay. Um, uh, a, a quick summary of, of, of what happened here. Um, large personal injury claim due for a 13 day trial. Um, three weeks before trial, brief is delivered uh, to leading counsel with an agreed brief fee of £125,000. £15,000 of that is said to cover a mediation which takes place a couple of days after the brief is delivered. The claim is settled, the settlement is approved. Um, and so there is a claim for 15,000 for the mediation and 110,000 on the brief. Uh, and it's fair to say, beyond preparing for the mediation, um, council didn't really do much, if anything, in the way of prep for trial. And that ended up being reduced from the 110,000 to 27,500. Um, and it was reduced um, in three stages, each of which I, I do have some concern about the reasoning in relation to. The first was um, just good old fashioned reasonableness. Deputy Master Campbell said, well, 110,000 is too high. I'm going to assess the reasonable fee at 75,000. Then there was the issue of abatement. So because the brief had been delivered three weeks before trial and counsel hadn't really done any work and there was still time for him to do other work if it settled. 
um, the deputy master then halved the 75,000 to 37,500. And then the, 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 the final sting in the tail was that he took notice of the fact that, that council had in fact done about 10,000 pounds worth of work during the period when he would otherwise have been on brief. So he knocked that 10,000 pounds off as well. Uh, and that brought the final figure down to, to 27,500. Um, and yeah, as, as I said, I mean, I, I'm, I'm troubled by the reasoning in relation to every stage of that process. Now, as far as reasonableness is concerned, um, there was, um, I have to say, a, a very surprising concession because this was a budgeted case. There was, I thought, a very surprising concession that there was a good reason to depart from the budget. Now, the, the, the good reason, which, which the deputy master said in all, in all fairness to counsel who made the concession, that, that, that it was a, a concession well made, um, I have to say with respect, I don't agree, um, that the reason given was that because there had been no trial but, of course, the brief fee doesn't go into the trial phase. It goes into the trial prep phase, mm. as, as, as what's now in the PD3E makes very clear. And the trial prep phase had been completed. So I don't see how the lack of a trial could ever be a, a good reason. Well, perhaps be careful not to say ever, but in the ordinary case, could be a good reason to depart from the budget in the trial prep phase. But also, even if we take as a given that... that these budgets have just not been drawn as they should have been, and the brief had gone into the trial phase. We're, we're told in the judgment that, that 307,500 had been in the approved budget for trial, including 145,000 on the brief. Now, of course, we know there's no hypothecation of sums within the total to particular elements, but if the brief is delivered at a reasonable time, and the agreed brief fee is less than, as it was, the figure which the master had before him when he approved the budget. It's not obvious to me why that's a good reason to depart from the budget just because the trial doesn't actually go ahead. So that, that, that's concern one. Concern two is on abatement. Again, there was a concession that abatement was appropriate. It, it's not a concession, I have to say, that I would have made. I think the first question has to be, was the date of delivery of the brief reasonable? Now, three weeks before a high value two week, uh, two and a half week trial, I would say that is a reasonable time to deliver the brief. And I, I don't think there's any finding to the contrary in the judgment. But the case law on abatement really talks about briefs being delivered well in advance of trial when it can be said that actually a large part of the brief is not compensation for the work per se, but also what's talked about as the commitment element. And actually you can test the inappropriateness of the halving of the brief fee here by the fact that we know what council was actually able to earn during that period. In a period when according to the deputy master, he should have earned 75,000 pounds from the brief, on top of the 27,500, which he was actually allowed, he only earned 10,000. So that actually rather demonstrates, I mean, you could say that's good empirical evidence that the abatement was, was, was much too severe. And I think there's a good argument there should have been no mm. abatement at all. And then I think things really went wrong when there was a reduction, a further reduction for the fees that, that were actually earned. And, and the language used in the judgment is of mitigation of loss, which is, I, I think, fundamentally inappropriate. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. We're not awarding damages for, for, for breach of a duty or an obligation. Well, the fee which was agreed once abated for early settlement 
represents what it's reasonable for council to charge in circumstances where the trial doesn't go ahead and council doesn't do much work and already takes into account the possibility that council will be able to do other work. It's inherent in the abatement that, that council will be available for other work. So if you then additionally deduct the value of that work, I think you've clearly double counted for the same factor. That's concern one. And concern two is, um, from council's point of view, it means he basically did that extra work for nothing. He would actually have been better off um, just, you know, just going on holiday for two weeks and there would have been no additional deduction. And, and, and quite apart from my sympathy with council from that point of view, and I think you, you're getting into some difficult conflict areas here with, with the client with whom you'd agreed the brief fee, because it's in the client's interest for you to take on as much work as you possibly can in the ensuing period. It's in your interest as council not to do so. So where, where, where does that leave you? So, so I think there's, you know, there, there, there's more to this than me just in, in my shop steward role. It will be interesting to see in future how, how much traction this, this carries in future cases. But given how much of the decision was based on concessions, which in another similar case, certainly I wouldn't make, um, perhaps th th this will end up being a, a bit of a sort of one-off curiosity ra rather than indicative of a, of a broader trend, but we'll have to see. Mm. I, I agree with you, Jamie, about the last bit about double counting, because it does seem to me that the 50%, which was awarded at the second stage, is a sort of loss of loss of a chance. And then you, when you, you award for loss of a chance, and then you quantify the, the actual amount lost. Uh, it seems to, it's going to complicate things in future with people saying, well, what did you do? Why did you go on holiday? And all that kind of thing. It, it becomes very complicated. But standing back a little bit, and... and uh, against your uh, shop steward role, um, it would have been a bit of a windfall otherwise, wasn't it, to get all that money um, for effectively no work. Um, I, I wonder whether some reduction shouldn't have been made or is that just in the nature of things? I, I think barristers would defend that. I think, you know, the, the sun reader would perhaps have more difficulty with it. Well, I, I think you either accept the concept of a brief fee or, or you don't. Um, you know, you're not charging on an hourly rate basis, and we've all had experiences where you know you agree a brief fee on one basis, and then and then the claim becomes much more complicated, and, and you end up doing worse out of it. You toss up your hours afterwards, and you, you discover it's about half what you would normally have charged. So I think if you if you accept the concept of a brief fee, then you're accepting an element of swings and roundabouts. I think my issue here is not with the concept of abatement. I think it's just the analysis didn't necessarily start in the right place. I think had the brief been delivered, let's say two weeks earlier than it was, that would have been unreasonably early, a point at which to incur the entirety of the cost. And I would have had no difficulty whatsoever with, with abatement in those circumstances, possibly by 50%, you know, that, that, that would be completely unchallengeable. But if the brief is delivered, and, and yes, it's not staged, but it's delivered at a time when it would be reasonable for, um, for, for counsel to have commenced work and then to have worked on this case constantly. And he only didn't have to because it settled. And the facts demonstrate that actually counsel wasn't really able to do much else in that period. Then, then I think that rather demonstrates that at that point abatement isn't appropriate. But, but yeah, it, it's a question of facts and degree mm. in every case. I, I mean, I think it's a slippery slope to go down the route of actually putting evidence in of, of how much yeah. council did earn in the in, in the intervening period 
I mean, you know, what, what happens next? You know, do you get clerks turning up saying, well, actually, you know, we had this really juicy brief came, came in that we actually had to turn down or had to be allocated to somebody else because uh, because he was booked for this trial. You know, do you take that into yeah. account? You know, the, the, it, it, well, never mind, you know, in 75, he missed out on a £150,000 brief because he booked himself for this case. I mean, it, you'd right. go on forever, wouldn't you? I mean, I think, if, you know, if there is if there is a broader lesson here, it, it's for a large case with a large briefie, um, it's probably better to agree stages where you can, yes. in a sense, separate the commitment element from the work element. And, and if that briefie yeah. had been, you know, delivered in in five tranches every couple of weeks, you know, increasing as time went on, then insofar as tranches had been incepted, I would have thought they would probably be untouchable as long as they're, yeah. you know, as long as they're they're reasonable. Yeah. Yes. Should we move on to um, whether clients owe their solicitors a duty of good faith? Um, yes. Now this this is a really interesting case, Candy and and Boshe, and and um, it touches on um, some issues of, of of real importance to the relationship between solicitor and and client. Um, the solicitors here were, as far as one can tell from the judgments, it's described as a contingency retainer, and I think it means a, a DBA were acting yeah. for a client who was a defendant to a fraud claim but had his own counterclaim. And the client ended up doing a drop hand settlement uh, with the claimant, which was obviously no good to the solicitors. But But interestingly, the solicitors had themselves negotiated an alternative settlement, which, as far as one can see, was just as good for the client, but would have given these solicitors some chance of, of recovering something for their fees. Uh, and the client refused to do so and entered into the drop hand settlement. Now, this, this resulted in the solicitors making effectively two claims against the client, which you could call the small claim and the big claim that the small claim was for breach of a term in the retainer, which they said obliged the client in effect to take the deal that was better for the solicitors, all other things being equal for the, for the client. But the problem with that claim is, as the judge held, was that it, it wasn't worth more than 21,000 pounds and what the solicitors were looking for was three million pounds. And so that takes us on to the big claim which was that they were fundamentally induced to enter into this DBA by the client's fraudulent misrepresentations about aspects of the case and, and the way it was going to conduct the litigation. And that was either the value of their services or what they would have earned doing other things. And the, the big claim was thrown out because on a summary basis, because the solicitors had no real prospect of establishing that any of the obligations um, that they wanted to impose on their clients, in particular obligations of, of, of good faith, um, would be established. Solicitors owe fiduciary duties to their clients, and actually it, it was precisely because they are fiduciaries that this is not a reciprocal relationship, um, and, and clients do not owe duties of good faith to their solicitors. But there's another very interesting aspect um, to this, on which I'm not sure that the judge did come to the right conclusion about the solicitor's ability to use privileged documents against their own client. And, and they wanted to use those documents to make good parts of their case on misrepresentation. And the judge held that they weren't entitled to do so. Um, 
even where the solicitors were alleging fraud, the test that the judge applied, which is one taken from the cases involving privilege vis-a-vis third parties, people outside the retainer relationship, is that what the client has to have done is, is, is not simply told an untruth to their solicitor, but effectively abused the solicitor-client relationship for an improper purpose, so they're not really acting as a, as a client towards their solicitor. Uh, and the judge's starting point was very much privilege is sacred. It, 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 it's, it's grounded in the public policy of a client being able to be open with their solicitor. Uh, and that the cases on implied waiver are, are ones where it's the client that chooses to open up the relationship, for example, on a professional negligence claim, or, or indeed, as we very often see uh, on a Section 70 assessment, but it's, it's a one-way valve. Now, I'm, I'm not sure about that analysis. And it's interesting that Charles Hollander in, in his book, and he also, I think, writes the, the, the chapter on this in Phipson where he said the same thing, says that actually another analysis, and this might be a better analysis, is that as between solicitor and client, there is no confidentiality. And where there is no confidentiality, there can be no privilege. I mean, privilege is ultimately, it's a rule of evidence. And if the solicitor says to the client, you told me X, there's no reason why the client should be able to stop the solicitor from saying that. Now, if the court needs to sit in private so that that can be done without anything being revealed to the wider world, um, then it can. But, but, but I, I, I think there are legitimate grounds for concern if, if there is nothing a solicitor can do in these circumstances. Now, the, the, the judge had answers to this. She said, well, th this isn't a problem for solicitors because firstly, solicitors can bring a claim if the basis for the alleged misrepresentation can be founded on material in the open. So let, let's say the case goes to trial and the client is taken apart in the witness box. Well, you know, that gives you material on which you can found a claim. And also she said, well, the solicitors are going to be amply compensated for this risk by their success fee under a CFA or, or, or their DBA percentage. Now, I think the first of those you can say is somewhat arbitrary. Um, I mean, great, if something emerges at trial, then the solicitor can bring a claim. But in many of these circumstances, it's not going to get to trial precisely because the solicitors discover something um, that, that, that means that the claim is a bad one and arguably their client has, has lied to them. Um, and actually, this approach might create a perverse incentive for the solicitors to take a case to trial so that something can come out in the open and give them some material to found a claim on. Um, and as for the compensation by the success fee, well, I think it raises some interesting questions about what, what risk is the solicitor taking on? I mean, clearly, the solicitor is taking on the risk that it's a bad claim. The solicitor is taking on the risk that something will turn up in disclosure that shows it's a bad claim, that the client perhaps has innocently not told them everything. But I wonder how many solicitors would say that they're accepting the risk that their client is simply lying to them. Um, and of course, you know, we see a lot of uh, bespoke CFAs drafted for commercial litigation, which require the client specifically to warrant that they have told the solicitors everything they know about the case. And I think that that leads on also to um, quite a significant consequence for this decision, which wasn't explored in the judgment, is where does it leave the solicitor's ability to terminate a CFA? Because a well-drafted CFA will give the solicitor ample grounds to do that in circumstances like this, where they find out the client has lied to them. But 
how are they going to support their termination if they can't produce the material to do so? Now, if what happens is the solicitor terminates, delivers a bill to the client for everything that's due under the agreement, and the client launches a Section 70 assessment to challenge that bill, well, that's great. There's, there's, there's an implied waiver of privilege. The solicitor can put everything on the table. But what if instead the client says, you know what, I'm not going to do anything, you sue me. Solicitor sues on the bill. Client defends itself, saying you prove your right to terminate in these circumstances. Difficult to see how the solicitor can do so. The solicitor is the claimant. There's no, uh, there's no implied waiver of privilege. On this decision, the solicitor couldn't do so. Um, and I think I think that that creates you know real real problems. I can I can understand why on the facts of this case the judge came to the decision that she did. I can't see from the Court of Appeal case tracker that there's been any attempt to take this case further. But I think this is an issue which is ripe for consideration by the Court of Appeal at some point. I'd agree with you, Jamie. I, I thought she misread the earlier case, um, which was spited on um, a, the situation where a solicitor's claimant as opposed to defendant. So there's no automatic waiver of privilege. Um, she, Because she construed that um, against the background of Section 69 of the Solicitors Act as though having to sue your client for um, costs meant that there'd been misconduct on the part of the client. Um, so as to justify uh, going behind privilege. I, I just think that's a misreading of, of the situation. Yeah. Um, which she was probably forced on because she wanted to come to the conclusion that she did. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, we've, we've spent quite a long time. Can we have the, the briefest of mentions for the Winross or Rosenblatt uh, against Global Energy Horizons Corporation case? Really no more than the passing mention because I think we've touched on it in the past and um, all felt terribly sorry for Rosenblatt. And now... Is there a different uh, take? Well, we, we can say there's been a happy ending for Rosenblatt because um, almost all of the decisions made at first instance were, uh, were overturned on appeal, and in particular the unenforceability of the CFAs. I think the lesson from this case is think very hard before introducing unusual elements into any kind of contingent retainer. Um, the, the judge came to one view. It was different from the master's view. I can entirely understand why the master came to the view she did. Um, I, I suspect um, many judges would have would have split equally between the two possible outcomes. You're you're taking an enormous risk um, whenever you depart from 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 standard, well understood retainer terms. I agreed. Look, um, the quality of the recording at my end has been dreadful, and I'm sure some of that has come across in this. Um, so I should be very brief and just thank you uh, very much, Jamie, for a really interesting talk on some actually rather important cases that have turned up over the last year. Thank you very much. And uh, we hope to see you again on another of these calls, which hopefully will be less um, affected by Internet problems. Yep. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a great pleasure to join you.